0: I'm here with my co-pilot Pete Davis. Hello. And we are delighted to be talking to Dr. Samantha Hill, who is the Associate Director of the Hannah Arendt Center for Politics and the Humanities at Bard College. Welcome, Samantha.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me, Elias and Pete. It's a pleasure to be talking with you today.
0: Yeah, I've been looking forward to this. Um, I'm going to mention briefly how I ran across uh, the center, and then I've got a, an opening question for you. I, I think um, I was aware of Hannah Arendt's writings from way back, and in college was assigned um, Eichmann in Jerusalem, which absolutely mm-hmm. stunned me, just stunned me. Um And then I I didn't much go on reading her, but, you know, I'm one of these people that carried around a copy of Origins of Totalitarianism for years, you know, one of those big books. (laughs) Someday I have to read this. Well, the day came, okay? The the day came in 2016. So, and it was an extraordinary book. And then I wanted to know more, and I found out there was this thing called the Hannah Arendt Center, and it's been very exciting to discover it Um, and to to discover your work. Tell us first, uh, Sam, how did you get interested in political theory?
1: Oh, goodness. Um, the er questions. Yeah. So, (laughs) um, I, I think I developed an early interest in political theory when I was about 13 or 14 actually, um, I, my, <laughs> my, with Nietzsche, actually, huh. um, Shakespeare, Shakespeare and Nietzsche, um, I came across a volume of his collected writings. My mother used to hand me $20 and drop me off in front of the Barnes and Nobles, which was the one bookstore oh, in town, you know? So, yeah, yeah, it was. I went in on my own and I kind of fumbled around and somehow I came out with, you know, one of these, you know, every man volumes, the collected writings huh. of Nietzsche, I, fell in love with the birth of tragedy mm-hmm. um, when, mm-hmm. I, when I was about <laughs> 13 or so. And then I just started poking around, you know, that was the beginning of the internet age and in my lifespan. So I could, I could search. And I think I remember I, I read Locke from there. And when I got to college, um, I knew I wanted to study political f- philosophy um, I wasn't quite aware of the difference between philosophy and political theory at that point, mm-hmm. um, but I came across Hannah Arendt's *The Human Condition* my freshman year of college. I was actually in the library looking for an Eric Fromm book, um, <laughs> and I I found *The Human Condition*, and I it's a very vivid uh, memory. I I fell in love. Um, I was reading it on this sofa. Um, in in this room which was quite beautiful and I was just washed in Arendt's poetic language and Mm -hmm. I had no idea what she was talking about Mm -hmm. I had absolutely Mm -hmm. no idea what she was talking about (laughs) so so I took about nine directed studies in college to do nothing but read Hannah Arendt um, and Aristotle and Hegel and um, Marx and Frankfurt School thinkers which is what I'm still doing (laughs) that's great so that's that's, the long, that's part of the long story of how I ended up on that path. Um, yeah.
0: And you got a PhD, I believe?
1: Yes. So I have a PhD in political science um, from the University of Massachusetts, Amherst. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote about uh, the political life of mourning in contemporary political theory, huh. thinking about the ways in which individual events of loss um, become collective political events for organizing um, and I, I taught I was teaching a course on that at Bard actually in 2016 when Donald Trump was elected president um, mm-hmm. from Antigone to Black Lives Matter um, thinking about death and mourning and political theory And it was really, it was, it's the only time I've taught the course and, you know, it's rather indulgent to teach a whole class on (laughs) your particular area of interest. Um, And I walked in, I remember I walked into the classroom that Wednesday morning after the election, Mm -hmm. you know, and nobody had gone to bed and there were 16 students in the class and it was just dead silent and they were sitting there quietly crying just tears streaming from their cheeks and it the class became an exercise in mourning um which perhaps i'll write about someday um developing that work somewhere else but Mm -hmm. in the meantime i i find myself doing more intellectual history these days or writing about um cultural topics
2: could i jump into an arent question Please. Yes. Or is it too early to do that? No, no. So something that fascinates me is we we get this, I have the very layman Arendt question. Elias will have much more uh, rigorous uh, back uh, uh, deep cuts. Um, but I will ask about the famous line, which is, you know, the banality of evil is written in 1960. The, the phrase is coined in 1963 um, by Arendt. And yet it seems like, we have and everyone talks about it you know it's it's very popular idea and yet we have Mm -hmm. we have not internalized it as a culture as a path to how evil happens you know people still file away going to their jobs uh people still participated in um in aspects of the war on terror that and they you know people are in the trump administration now and I'm from law school. The the uh, I'm from the legal profession, which is the greatest profession of the banality of evil. <laughs> <laughs> and these, you know, they know no. about this race. No. They know about that. They've yeah. inter. They've they, they read it. They they've heard about it, and yet we're 50 years yeah. later, and people have not internalized it. As that is how it happens. They keep saying, "Oh, you know, I'm not like Hitler. I'm not like that. I'm not no, like the
0: exactly. exactly."
2: Why do you uh, why do you think it hasn't it's broken through to the consciousness, but has not broken through to the soul, Samantha.
1: To the soul, it hasn't. Well, you know, Arendt says uh, there's a great there's a great letter that she an early love letter she writes to I think her it's her second husband Heiner Blücher, and you know she says, you know, it's some you know it's this kind of romantic sentence and you know, getting on, and then she says, but there's no soul, so I'm not going to worry about that. So I think the two in parent parlance perhaps would be um, similar if it had broken into our self-reflective consciousness <laughs> that might be akin to breaking into our soul. Um You know, evil is something that has always existed in the world. This is one of the I think, fundamental questions of philosophy and of political philosophy, and it's certainly a question that's at the heart of Arendt's work um, from, the, from her early days writing on um, German romantic idealism and love in St. Augustine and thinking about building community together to her last work on the life of the mind and thinking willing and judging that middle section on willing which everyone always seems to skip over oddly um, actually has a bit to do with evil and thinking about why we will evil Mm. in the world Um, and you know so aren't got aren't gotten a lot of trouble for (laughs) writing the eichmann in jerusalem book which we we can talk about if you want and i think you know there are a couple of common misconceptions one is her idea of the banality of evil. Um, So at the end of Origins of Totalitarianism, she actually talks about radical evil um, and talks about how the Holocaust um, and totalitarianism is a new form of government. Um, Death camps are a radical form of evil in the world, um, that they're not the commonplace evil that we've um known throughout human history as it were in a certain sense um but she she leaves that idea of radical evil in the eichmann book and she um you know she really thought he was a buffoon and that's what she says in some of her later interviews she said she couldn't help but laugh at him Um, And, you know, she viewed laughter as a form of self-sovereignty, but she really found him to be ridiculous in the way that he spoke and understood his language to be a limitation of his consciousness to imagine the world from the perspective of another, to have that kind of empathy. Um, And so the banality of evil is, you know, her claim on people's ability to do evil if they don't engage in self-reflective thinking which is not to say that everybody's capable of becoming Adolf Eichmann and she doesn't mean it that way but she means that Eichmann isn't engaging in a kind of self-reflective thinking in this kind of empathetic thinking of being able to imagine the world in an expansive sense from the position of another person to literally in the Kantian sense expand the imagination um, and to go wandering, and that you know this is the banality of evil, um, and it's difficult to separate her work on thinking from her conception of the banality of evil. I think in that way, in my reading of R. N., because that's her—that's her claim on thinking. Um, that thinking has the ability to prevent evil doing in the world. One of my I wrote um. I wrote an essay, I think, for the L.A. Review of Books last year, and I cited one of my favorite statistics. Um, Every year, the, um, the U.S. Department of Labor conducts an annual time use survey where they ask people how they spend their days. And one of the questions that they ask is, how much time do you spend a day thinking? And I have, which is a, mar- it's a marvelous question. I have no idea what they mean by it or right. what people hear right. when they're asked that or what it's actually measuring. But it's something like 15 minutes a day
0: uh-huh.
1: people say they spend thinking, um, you know, as opposed to the three or four hours they spend watching TV and the, mm-hmm. and the other three or four hours they spend on the computer. Um, yeah. Yeah.
0: An interesting sign. You know, um, there's a documentary about her called Vita Activa. And at one point, um, I think it's her teacher, Carl Jaspers, maybe in the early 50s, writes to her. She's she's um, He's doing something on German guilt. And they're corresponding about it. And she's talking about the experience of the war and these demonic forces or something like that. And he seems to push back and say, no, we we don't want to make this regime into some extraordinary metaphysical thing because then then that's a a risk, that's a danger, that's weaponizable, you know? Um, And I wondered if maybe some of, of his suggestion led her to begin to think Uh, of Eichmann and so on in terms of this category of banality because she you know there's so many of her friends that were angry that she seemed to be minimizing something they they wanted um you know the the kind of common caricature of Hitler as a demonic figure the regime is demonic and anything short of that couldn't possibly be so right right
1: I don't know if I can I have my computer open in front of me it's a great question and i'm not sure that i can find the exact reference right now but if people go to i would say it's probably within the first 60 pages of the fabulous aren't jasper's correspondence volume which is just enormous the doom right Hmm. um in that exchange that you're referencing are you pulling the reference from the film or from the correspondence? Out of no, it was
0: from. It was just dropped into the movie briefly, uh, just a quote. Ah,
1: okay, I want. I want to say something about that in a second. But yeah. if you go to the correspondence, and I'll send you, I'll send you, um, I'll send you the reference. Um, okay, Yaspers actually uses the term banality. Um, Hmm. in talking about the regime in their early correspondence. Um, And I think that their exchange definitely has an influence on the way that she's thinking about acting in the world. Um, I think Jaspers has an enormous influence on um, Arendt's conception of what it means to do political theory Hmm. and to build the world in common and to have a kind of politics of solidarity which is grounded in conversation, which was at the center of his own philosophy, hmm. um, which was a real turnaway from Heidegger. Yeah, but yep. that, that's you know in the weeds aren't <laughs> hmm. trivia perhaps. But um, I, you know, that film I I cannot um, so I cannot uh, I cannot wholly endorse okay. as an aren't documentary because. The the woman who made it did something very peculiar, and that is she put in all of these aren't quotes that are not actually aren't quotes. Oh. So she actually rewrote all of them. <laughs> so none of them are actually um ver you know taken directly from the text. So I think one of the most explicit examples, and I haven't I haven't seen it since it came out, you know, she actually says, Hannah Arendt says the banality of evil is. And of course, aren't never gave us those clean formulations. Mm-hmm. Um, in part because she's a rigorous conceptual thinker who's always uh, beginning again in her own thinking. So there's no there's no definitive crystallized, clean um, definition. So I would I would say go back to the text. There's my I put on sure. my professor hat. Sure. Go yes. back and read the correspondence, which is actually quite quite beautiful. Um, it's, it's a really delightful correspondence to read. Sounds great. It sounds very good. For quite some time.
2: Speaking of rigor, um, and lack thereof, um, (laughs) there is a, there is there's become a, um, a cottage industry of books about totalitarianism in the last three years. Um, everyone, you know, every, it seems like everyone with an op-ed column who's a centrist has written, you know, uh, Donald oh, Trump yeah. on the right and Elizabeth Warren on the left, totalitarians or something, you know, and um, it's basically anyone who um, and, you know, they they have their mega theories of what Orban has to do with, you know, Antifa and um, and I'd love to hear uh, as you as an expert on one of the most rigorous thinkers on totalitarianism, what it's been like experiencing this flourishing of unrigorous thinking on Yeah. On yeah. Uh, totalitarianism and uh the, right. the dreaded populism is
1: oh populism yes which is which is a word we hear everywhere now um yeah that's a it's, it's an it's an excellent question i think you know there's kind of perhaps at least two questions in your question one is what has been my personal response to um the cottage industry of totalitarian literature post 2016 um, and then how do we deal with this as scholars and in um, public-facing work and conversations? And um, there, I think my answers are probably related a bit. I mean, it's so I think that the January after Donald Trump was elected president, I was invited to do the Night of Philosophy at the Brooklyn Public Library and to give a 30-minute talk on totalitarianism. And I, I thought it's midnight it's the it's the library like forty people are going to be in the room, and I'm going to you know talk about the various elements that aren't outlines in the origins of totalitarianism and fun for me, but you know pretty depressing otherwise, given the situation and I walked into the room and there were like over four hundred people in there wow. I felt like <clears throat> uh, and there- and they they all asked me the same question. Everyone had the exact same question and everyone's still asking the same question, which is, is the United States becoming a totalitarian country? Is the United States becoming a fascist country? And so a lot of the, I'll say popular literature that I've been reading tends to feed this kind of political rhetoric, which I'm not sure helps us ground a politics that can move us forward democratically. Um, the United States is not a fascist country. It's not a totalitarian country. Um, there are certainly elements I think of what aren't would consider to be fascist or totalitarianism alive and well in the United States today, like the collapse between fact and fiction, which we see, um, in a lot of the language around fake news and um, which I think Donald Trump is really brilliant at exploiting. And he understands that it mobilizes his base. I think in part because it upsets us, of those of us who might be more liberally inclined. Um, and I, the two go together in the sense that I worry that some of the, some of the writing that I read, like Jonathan Franzen's piece in The New Yorker this week on global climate change, for example. And one
2: that will go down in history.
1: <laughs> yes. Um, has, has, uh, the Arendtian concern I have there is that it is appealing to the passions and not to our ability to discern hmm. and to judge um, you know, Arendt was a conceptual thinker in the sense that she thought concepts were never ends in themselves, but they were always wellsprings from which we begin to do the work of thinking. Um and so that requires a constant engagement, a constant returning, um, and thinking about the various elements that are At play. I think a number of good pieces have been written about Arendt and totalitarianism in the past couple of years. Um, My colleague, the founder of the HANA Arendt Center, Roger Berkowitz, wrote a wonderful review for the LA Review of Books on origins of totalitarianism right after the election. Lindsay Stonebridge. Um, has been writing beautifully on why we should read *Aren't Now* and also thinking about the current refugee crisis and mm-hmm. statelessness. Um, there's a small book that was put out by Verso on the right to have rights, um, which is also, I think, very thoughtful. Um, thinking about the thinking about immigration and the refugee crisis. Um, you know, and then we have people like Paul Mason writing, you know, for the New York Review of books, oh, yeah, which I would not him, recommend.
0: Right. Yeah, right. Thinking,
1: you <laughs> about Arendt, um who I I have I, I have very little uh, tolerance for that kind of um <laughs> for that kind of engagement, you know, there's, I always say to my students, there are better readings and there are worse readings and that's fine. As long as we're on that scale, we can talk about the text. And then there are willful misreadings Mm -hmm. um, that look entirely past a text in order to push one's own political agenda. Um, But I think it's important right now to historically think about the differences between totalitarianism, fascism, authoritarianism, some um, political dictatorships. Um, and in our, in a lot of popular publications, I think we see these terms being collapsed in upon one another. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Bernie Sanders tweeted yesterday, basically, that Trump is an authoritarian. Um, there might be authoritarian elements about Trump, but he's not an authoritarian, and it's being used as a, as a tool of political rhetoric, which I understand. But I also worry how I worry about how that shapes our ability to engage in p- political conversation that mm-hmm. orients us towards what's actually happening in front of us um, and not blowing it out of proportion or imagining these apocalyptic scenarios about the future. Um, you know, that that I think is very much at the heart of Arendt's political project um, is always trying to plant our feet. In the present, and get us to look at what is happening in front of us and not to look at the world as we might wish it to be or as it might have been. Um, for her, both nostalgia and that kind of futurist temporality are both dangerous um, in politics.
0: Hmm. It, it seems she's also trying to clear a space for real politics to reemerge. And I wonder if, if you get the sense that's where the center is going in some ways. I mean, the center stands out to me as a group of people that are trying very hard to uh, manage a kind of intellectually independent conversation. And mm. so, you you know, there are tomatoes hitting one window and bricks hitting the other window. and. <laughs> So I, I know that you've had a few um, collisions uh, t- trying to trying to maintain this this noble stance. Maybe maybe you could talk about that a little bit.
1: Um, is there something in particular that you're thinking about, or someone? Well, you know, there was the,
0: there was um, a thing um, the, the invitation to to uh, the German speaker in 2017. You're,
1: you're talking about. Mark. I just want to make sure you're talking about Mark Youngen.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then probably there are other things too, because I'm sure there are always people who want you to get ideological. Right. Right. I mean, and pick a yeah. side for, for Pete's sake. <laughs> <laughs> um, Whose side are you on?
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm not on, I'm, I, you know, there's and there's a great, panel discussion Hannah Arendt did. I think it was Toronto 1972. It's in Thinking Without a Bannister. It's Hmm. been titled Hannah Arendt on Hannah Arendt. Um, She was invited to it as the guest of honor, but she insisted on participating instead. Hmm. Um, And I think it's Hans Morgenthau who says to her, so what are you? Are you (laughs) a liberal? Are you a conservative? Are you... Uh, communist, you know, she, what are you? And she says, I don't know. I've never <laughs> known. And I don't think that question's going to get us anywhere.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, it's, uh, you know, so one of the things that we do at the Hannah Arendt Center is. And one of the programs, I can actually talk about one of the programs um, I oversee at the HANA Arendt Center called the Tough Talks Program, is we invite speakers to campus whose viewpoints would not otherwise be represented on our campus. So that means we bring a variety of speakers across the political spectrum. Um, the controversy you're referring to um, was the invitation to Mark Youngen, who came and spoke at our conference on the crises of democracy three years ago, two years ago now. Um, And when I was not involved in his invitation, but I do know that when he was invited, um, he was not yet elected as a member of Alternativa for Deutschland. um, And he came as a recommendation from Peter Slaughter who's a public intellectual in Germany. I don't personally know Slaughter Dyke's work. I haven't read it. It's not really my area of interest. Um, I might poke around in it eventually. It's sitting in the library somewhere. Um, but he was coming as a member of this German populist group as somebody who was a public intellectual figure and who had been a student of Slaughter Dyke. Um, And then he was of course elected um, as a member of Alternativa for Deutschland. Uh, and he was put in conversation with Ian Baruma. Um, and you can watch the video of their conversation online, which I I recommend watching.
0: Um,
1: I think it's it's a it's a very it's a very interesting conversation. Um, Ian did not go easy on him. And the questions the audience asked were also quite challenging. Um, and, you know, the question I think that people are asking right now is, well, do you give a, I think the language is platforming. Do you give, uh, you know, do you give a microphone to somebody from a, a right populist group, right? When... So many of us understand ourselves to be trying to fight against the rise of a liberalism worldwide and these populist movements, which we see chipping away at democratic goods. Do you invite them in to talk about their politics? And I can say for myself that I actually learned quite a bit listening to him. Um, It was was interesting to hear his perspective um, and to see him charismatically selling his political points, um, which I don't think anyone in our audience was particularly buying, but it was interesting to see um, a member of that political party um, who I otherwise would not have seen. And I think it raised, it opened up a lot of space on campus for students to talk about, um, to talk about populism and the different forms of populism and the different elements of populism um, that Jungin was talking about, like uh, forms of nationalism, hmm. or um, you know, a multi-ethnic society, um, which he's opposed uh, against. Um, so it was it was an interesting event. But to um, to go back, the um, the well, I can. I can stop, or I don't know if you no, want to No, no, keep in. going.
2: Go back. Do, you edit,
1: do you edit these conversations? We
2: try. Lightly. <laughs> <Lately.
1: laughs> <laughs> okay. Just curious. Um, I, I was just going to say a few more words about our Tough Talks program, which I think is a really great student-led initiative that we oh. have at Bard. Um, the students actually came to us at the Hannah Arendt Center a few years ago, and they complain that Bard felt like too much of a bubble and that they wanted to, um, you know, push against this uh, idea that Bard was a liberal bubble and to show that there were actually, um, you know, a a variety of political perspectives on the campus and that the campus is a part of the world, um, which I think is wonderful. Um, And so every spring they invite um, three or four speakers to come and give a talk um, on a topic that they're interested in. So we've had people like Laura Kipnis come and talk about Title IX. Um, we've had uh, we've had Chelsea Manning uh, come a couple of years ago. Um, the videos in the list are online, um, but people from across the political spectrum, and I think that this kind of work that the students are doing um and that we're doing at the RN center of opening up space for conversation is uh the kind of political work um you know that i wish there was more of today and i think some people are really trying to do it but thinking about creating spaces for conversation where we can meet one another first as human beings and then to share our political <laughs> opinions with one another and to be okay with disagreeing with one another um, and to engage the ideas and not collapse and to ad hominem attacks. Um, in the human condition, Arendt says that the political virtue par excellence is courage. Mm-hmm. She says it takes courage to step into the public and to share your opinion. It takes courage because <clears throat> you can be shot down. You can be told that you're wrong. You can be um, made to feel like an idiot. You might also convince someone of something, Mm -hmm. um, but you have to appear um, and to make an argument. And I worry that today we're losing those spaces where people can openly politically engage one another. It feels like everyone's hedging their language these days. Um, because they feel the need to be politically correct, because of I think, what do we call them <laughs> internet mobs, um, <laughs> and um, and so on.
2: <sighs> so, one question as we're uh, getting closer to wrapping up is, you know, for uh, I always like asking folks that are fans or devotees of someone. Uh, uh, there's so much to like about. Arent, but what is the thing? And she was so precedent oppressive about so many things. Um, what do you think she got completely wrong?
1: Oh goodness! Oh goodness! That's a that's a great question. Blind
0: <clears throat> spots. I um, thought you might say civil rights.
1: Well, that's that's one of the first places I <clears throat> jump in my head. Hmm. Um, what do I fight with Arendt about in my head most often? Um, maybe love. Hmm. Hmm. I think which actually goes to the civil rights. Um, some of her arguments around civil rights and her critique of James Baldwin, certainly. Um
2: for, for listeners who don't know about these, what 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 yes. did she say about James Baldwin yes. and love? What did, yes. love? I'm, I'm <laughs> I, what did she have against love?
1: What did she have against love? That's great. Well, so in The Human Condition, Hannah Arendt says that love is not only apolitical, but it is perhaps the most anti-political of all human forces. Hmm. Because love, in the sense that she means it in this phrasing, turns us toward one person and away from the world it turns us inside instead of out toward the world of action um and then so she writes to james baldwin after the publication of an essay of his in the new yorker and he she's very congratulatory and then she says but i must disagree with you Um, you know love basically she argues love cannot ground a politics as long as a politics is grounded on the emotions um, it will in a sense appeal to a kind of common lowest common denominator Um, and it will not be buttressed by real political principles that's how I read her critique of Baldwin there um and I think you know, so she also, she 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 talks about many different forms of love and she wants to keep them all apart from one another. Um, you know, she says, I, I can't love a people. I can only love my friends. And I think, I think love was essential to Hannah Arendt's life in her friendships, her correspondence with Jaspers, her correspondence with Mary McCarthy, um, with Kurt Blumenfeld, um, you know, these are beautiful correspondences and she wants to keep mm. this kind of personal, I'll call it personal love, apart from any kind of political love. Mm. And I'm not sure that we can have political love and in, in a sense of, you know, community and solidarity and caring for one another. Um, without feeling supported by personal love. So I'm not sure how, I'm not sure how much we can keep those apart from each other conceptually. Um, I find myself thinking about love and aren't quite often. Um, um, That's a question I'm going to be thinking about for a while. Um, You know, the other The probably her most controversial essay, because I never frame the question that way when I'm thinking about it. But one of her essay on the crisis in Little Rock, where she argues against uh, the Brown versus Board decision. Um, you know, she later she retracts it actually.
0: Oh, I didn't. um, Huh. Okay.
1: In a in a letter. And, you know, she says that she got it wrong and that she didn't understand the, the depth of the problem, which I think is a really wonderful kind of yeah. self-own. What you want. Um, mm-hmm. But I think, you know, one of the things that people disagree with often in Arendt, what especially people who try to read her as a feminist of, of any sort, is the distinction that she draws between private and public.
0: I was about to ask and That happens. The, the feminism part. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
1: Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Well, Sorry. yeah, I was just going to say that's one distinction in her writing that I, I happen to agree with and think is, is, is rather important. Um, there is a great tendency, um, and uh, I realize this might make me an outlier in and, and many circles, but, you know, there's a great tendency today to think that everything is political.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And everything is not political, but many things are politicized. Right. And oftentimes the private is politicized. Um. But I am not a Foucauldian in that sense, and Arendt certainly would not have been to think that everything is a product of power relations of of politics in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sheldon Wolin a great political theorist of the 20th century um, Uh who taught at Princeton and Berkeley who wrote a lot about uh, capitalism and democracy and the corporatization of American politics Um, has a great line. And I think in one of his essays in Arendt from the seventies, where he says that if everything is political, then nothing is political and we have nothing to respond to. Mm
0: -hmm. I, I read your essay on the me too movement and it struck me um, as both courageous. <laughs>
1: which which um, essay? Well, the one
0: which of the one? Me, the Me Too movement. There were. Did there you a couple. Um, oh,
1: okay.
0: Okay.
1: I did. Okay.
0: And which it, one? Did it just struck me do? how reasonable it was. How what what a, a rare voice you are, <laughs> you know, trying to save trying to save some public space. And, oh. And, rescue the um, private space right we can't just yeah obliterate this distinction surely
1: well thank you um i appreciate i appreciate that greatly um and um yes i agree the pri- The private space is so essential to the way that arent is thinking about thinking about our ability to be discerning people in the world to judge um, and to be and to act in the world, um, we need we need the private sphere. We need the space of solitude um, where we can retreat and relax um, and engage in conversation with ourselves. Um, and I think the the other side of that in relationship to what I was writing about in response to the Me Too campaign um, is that we have these incredibly private, intimate experiences. Um, and when we, and I'm using the we here, um, but I'm just, I'll speak for my, myself, you know, as a, as a woman, when I share a private experience in a public space, that experience is very quickly Mm co-opted into Mm -hmm. a pre-existing political language Mm -hmm. that has a political agenda Mm -hmm. and that flattens the experience. Um, And I think it is also a way of taking agency away from women's stories that they're telling Um, aren't, always emphasize the need to retain plurality in the world and our distinction from one another and I think that I think that very much applies to the way that w- we talk about experiences and the experiences that we have and the stories we tell ourselves about the experiences that we have and one of the dangerous things I see happening in the language of the Me Too campaign is that those experiences are very quickly flattened into a political agenda. Yeah, it's just and sort of
0: consumed a- in a way, right? They're sort yeah. of raw, raw material. They're just raw material for, for the war.
1: Yes. Yes. Um, and I, you know, I, I wish there was a way <clears throat> for for women and men to Mm -hmm. share their experiences that allowed them to stand on their own if they want to share them. Mm -hmm. Um, And to be able to do that in a way that doesn't, you know, there's so much loss, I feel like, when you share a private experience in public, it transforms the experience. Mm -hmm. Um, I've been writing a memoir about sexual violence and um i uh i I had an affair with my undergraduate advisor when i was in college which led to his resignation from the college and that's a whole other story but i remember being you know 19 or 20 and when i told my friends about the affair that i had had which was consensual um you know he was 45 i was 19 and when i told them about the affair you know i was met with comments like oh my god i can't believe how many times you've been raped or oh well you you know it's a good thing that he's fired because you know he knew what he was doing and you didn't know what you were doing Hmm. and and that those those responses, those narratives never felt quite right to me. Mm-hmm. Um, as as a woman who, who who you know, wants to be able to tell her own story and to yep. have, you know, those experiences stand on their own. Um, and, you know, it's in, so I, I wrote a couple pieces on Me Too, one for the, the LA Review of Books and then a couple for the Hannah Arendt Center. And the amazing thing about writing those essays, which I thought I, I thought I would get, you know, some negative feedback on, was I actually just received a ton of thank you emails from mm-hmm. women um, who said thank you for saying what I don't want to say in public.
0: Yeah, great, great.
1: And I think that's um, you know that was heartening to me, but it's also it's also incredibly frightening to me that women don't feel like they can actually share their political opinion because then they'll be seen as, you know, participating in rape culture or blaming Mm -hmm. the victim um, or not being a good feminist. Um, And that's, that's really unfortunate to me. I think one of the other side effects, the other emails um, and conversations I've been having are with men who um, who are afraid to say or write anything. Um, I've had,
0: Hmm. I
1: I started keeping a list of, of article ideas from men who would come to me and say, uh, I would, I would really like to write this essay. Um, but I don't think I should because I'm a man Hmm. and, you know, you know, on things on things that don't even seem that controversial to me, like why adoption should be seen as a legitimate choice with abortion and public conversations, mm-hmm. um, but not feeling like they are allowed to share a political opinion uh, in public yeah, yeah. because of our current political climate. And yeah, to me that, um, I, I'm interested in opening up spaces of conversation um not not foreclosing them, and um
0: yeah. that's great that's great, and more power to all you guys there, Pete, any final thoughts? No, thank you so much for all you do at the center and um
2: uh, I think this is uh keeping <clears throat> it is uh serving. The goal of keeping an uh, intellectual alive in the public consciousness is a is a holy work. So, um,
0: I I appreciate it. And um, and uh, it's, a, it's a bigger job than you guys realized. We going, so, no? We're counting on you. Uh, memory, memory,
2: it's a <laughs> task.
1: And and. And we, and we poor academics and writers are counting on you to, um, to keep the conversation going.
0: <laughs> sure. So,
1: sure. The pleasure talking with you. And I'm always happy to talk about Hannah Arendt. So. Great.
0: Great. Thank you, Samantha Hill. <clears throat> uh, come uh, check us out at Solidarity Hall, solidityhall.org. And we will uh, talk again sometime, I am sure. Thanks all. Thank you. Bye, Samantha. Bye. Bye.